Hey guys, this is Weston with Covenant Church, and this is week two of our equipping class, Logos, Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And typically we'd be bringing you the audio of our actual class time, but unfortunately we had a snafu with the computer that was recording the class this week, and uh, we lost the actual recording and uh, so we thought we'd take just a few minutes and do a, a podcast and, and cover some of the material that we covered in week two of this class. And, and so just to recap a little bit from week one, um, week one we talked about the origins of the Bible. And so we went back and just started asking some very basic questions. What is this book? How did we get it? Uh, where did it come from? Um, how did we get the form of the Bible that we have today? And one of the things that we said was that the copy of the Bible that we have, so this this leather-bound, compiled collection of 66 books, that that's something that's relatively new within the scheme of human history. Throughout most of human history, people have encountered the Bible not as the Bible, but as uh, this group of books that were considered to be the Word of God. And so very often people were encountering the Bible as individual books. Um, so the individual book of Jeremiah or the individual book of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And that's, I, th- I think, important to remember, but it also gives some context to just how incredible it is that God could orchestrate this in such a way that all of these books, these 66 books written over a period of 1,600 years or so, that all of these books could be compiled together and um, tell a cohesive story and, you know, really kind of fit together like a hand at a glove uh, in such a way that we can look at different areas of Scripture and they complement one another or they um, coordinate with one another or they speak to things that we see. Um, you know, something in the Gospels may hyperlink back to something from the book of Jonah, for example. And, and so these things are, are very complementary. Um, and, and obviously that's just the hand of God um, weaving together the work of Scripture. And so it really is incredible to consider um, just what the Bible is. And so last week we talked about all of that. Um, um, we uncovered how the New Testament came to be and how, how just that process of canonization um, went. And, and then we also talked about, you know, why should we look at this as a, as a work that is authoritative? Why, why should we have confidence in the reliability of Scripture? And so we just talked about um, the ways in which we feel like there is an incredibly strong case for the reliability of Scripture. And so building off of that foundation, this week we're going to jump into uh, inductive Bible study. And we're going to go through, um, over the next few weeks, just some, some very basic methods for not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible. And as a sort of focus statement for this week, we said that God's speaking is the basis of our knowledge of Him and relationship to Him. God's speaking is the basis of our knowledge of Him and relationship to Him. So the Bible is God's Word. It is His divine Word 
to us. And we said last week that it is for us, but it's not necessarily about us. It's primarily about God and who he is and what he has done and what he has done through Jesus and what he will do through Jesus in the future. But all of those things are things that we know about because of the Bible. And so we said the Bible demands a certain level of faith from us, um, not in the sense that the Bible is the Bible in and of itself, like the artifact of the book, that, that it isn't in some way salvific by having faith in this book, but yet what we learn from the book is that uh, Jesus is the Son of God and that he came and lived a sinless life and, and died for us and rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Messiah, and that he did all of that so that we might not be uh, condemned in our sin, but instead could be forgiven from our sin and reconciled to God and adopted into his family. We learn about all of those things through the Bible. And, and so having faith in not only the authority, but the authenticity and reliability of the Bible is incredibly important. And what we see there is, is it really is the basis of not only our knowledge of who God is, but also of our relationship to him through Christ. And then as just kind of a core text for this week, Isaiah 65, 1 says, I revealed myself. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I, I said, here I am, here I am. And so this is, this is God saying, even though you're pursuing your own path, I'm still coming after you. Right? I, I was found by those who didn't seek me into a nation that didn't call on my name. I said, here I am, here I am. And, and, and ultimately, that's on some level what the Bible is. It is God revealing himself to us. It's God revealing himself to even people who don't know that there is a God or even people who don't want to have anything to do with God. The Bible is still here we have it. God has revealed himself to us, not only through the written word, but also through creation and a host of other ways, because he desires to be known by us. And, and isn't that incredible when, when you consider who we are and, and what we have done? Uh, when you consider our sin and our sin nature and the ways that we've turned our back on God and the ways that we've said, well, I don't even believe that God's real or the ways that we've sinned against him or the ways that we've intentionally not done what we know he would have us do, yet he still pursues us. He still desires relationship with us. He still desires to be known by us. And so that's an incredible thing. So the Bible is made up of 66 distinct books. There are at least... 40 authors. Um, that's, that's kind of an estimated number. There are some areas of Scripture where we're not 100% certain who wrote um, a particular book or a particular section. Um, probably the best example of this is the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Um, some people say it's the Apostle Paul, and there are certainly some um, characteristics of Paul's writing that can be found in the book of Hebrews. And then there are some things that are very much out of character for Paul that are found in Hebrews. Some people say maybe it's the Apostle Peter that wrote this. At the end of the day, we don't know. And at the end of the day, it doesn't make a huge difference um, because we can still glean 
biblical truth from the book of Hebrews and, and not be totally clear on exactly who it was writing. The same thing is true with uh, the book of Deuteronomy, for example. So, so historically and typically in the church, uh, it's believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which in the Hebrew Bible is known as the Torah. Um, sometimes you hear them called the Pentateuch, um, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and yet in the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses' death, and we see an account or a record of Moses' death. So obviously Moses wasn't writing that part, um, and so what what is believed is that Moses and his associates um, were responsible for the writing of, of these first five books. And so we don't know exactly how many authors there are, but but there are roughly 40 different authors, which, which again is incredible when you consider the cohesiveness of Scripture. Uh, the Bible, as we said, was written over 1,600 years, um, so almost two millennia, um, and the Bible has two distinct parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is essentially the Hebrew Bible, and we'll talk in just a moment about the ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament are organized, um, but the Hebrew Bible that was present um, and considered to be the Word of God during the day of Jesus is, is still what we have today in the form of the Old Testament. And uh, Jesus affirmed the Hebrew Bible, he taught the Hebrew Bible, he made constant references to the Hebrew Bible, and um, and then we have the New Testament, which is the account of the story of Jesus and the story of the apostles and the early church and, and essentially uh, what happened when Jesus came and died and rose and then what happened afterwards as a result of all that Jesus had done. Also, the Bible was written in three languages. Um, the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew. The New Testament, Testament was primarily written in, in the Greek language. And then there's a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled throughout. And so you think about Jesus on the cross uh, saying, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and Scripture records that um, phrase in Aramaic. And so it, it's just incredible. And, and the reason why we point out all of these things is just to point out that, man, how, how big and powerful and sovereign is our God that, that he could take all of these authors over such an extended period of time, all of these different books, and, and as we'll see in a minute, books that have a variety of literary genres represented, um, and also in different languages, and that he can bring this all together into this just incredible um, dovetailed work. When we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, that word testament might be a little bit confusing. I think we can think of it in terms of the word testimony, which might make a little bit more sense, um, the Old Testimony and the New Testimony. But I, I think a good word for us to use here, um, not necessarily in place of, but as a way of contextualizing the word testament, is the word covenant. And so essentially when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about what could be called the Old Covenant um, or, the, or the Abrahamic Covenant, the, God, the covenant that God makes with Abram um, early on in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And, and a part of this covenant is that his descendants uh, would be a blessing to the nations. And then we see later on that that covenant is, is fully realized in the person of Jesus, who through his death and resurrection is just this ultimate blessing to 
the generations and to the nations. And, and then what we find is that there is a new covenant that is established um, through the blood of Jesus. And the New Testament um, is basically the record of this new covenant in Christ. And so I think that's a helpful way to kind of think about this. Um, let's talk a little bit about the ways that the Bible is organized. Um, now, when you're talking about the Old Testament or when, you, when you're talking about the Hebrew Bible, uh, there are basically three sections, and our uh, kind of westernized uh, New Te- or Old Testament categorizes things and orders things a little bit differently than the Hebrew Bible, uh, but the content is, is pretty much the same. Uh, so when we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, uh, the first five books are the books of the law, or the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, and then you have the writings, um, which are some of the more poetic books, like Psalms and Proverbs, and then you have the prophetic works. Um, So Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Jeremiah, we're talking about um, these men, the prophets who were sent by God to declare the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. Uh, With our Bible, though, um, we don't necessarily organize the books of the Old Testament in that way. Um, Instead, what we do is we, we think kind of in terms of genre, and we start with Genesis, and we go to the book of Esther. And so right there, uh, we're talking about, what? what is that, um, like 14 books? No, is that right? 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 books. Uh, the first 17 books of the Old Testament are very much uh, works of history um, in that they are kind of telling this... Um, chronological account of the history of the nation of Israel. And it's not as chronological as maybe what we think of in a modern history book. Instead, the authors are kind of dipping in and out of sections of Jewish history. But we are getting this sense not only of how creation came to be, but we, we jump in, in the book of Genesis from creation, God making the heavens and the earth, God making the man and the woman, uh, the fall, all of those early, early things. And we immediately jump to the story of this guy named Abram. And it's kind of like, man, that's a, it seems like a big shift, but what the writer of Genesis is doing is going, okay, here's who God is. Here's what God has done. Now let's jump into or let's fast forward to this story of his people that he is calling and commissioning. And this begins with this guy, Abram, who God calls to pick up and leave his home and leave his country and to go to a country that he had never been to before. And and so we, we get um, not only the law that was handed down by God to Moses, we get that in the first five books of the Bible, but we also get the history of the people of Israel. Where did they come from? Well, they came from this guy, Abram. And then Abram has a son, and his son has a son. And then ultimately we find out that the people are enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And so God sends Moses um, as his representative to call Pharaoh to release the people of Israel. And, and, and so he does, ultimately, and there's a lot of story there, as, as many of you know, um, plagues and 
um, just all of this crazy stuff and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and these amazing miracles that God does. Um, but in the midst of all of this, we're, we're getting a lot of different things, but we're also getting this kind of chronological account of the nation of Israel. And we see in the midst of that some poetry. Um, we see uh, some symbolic things or some metaphorical things. Um, but then we, we move on. We get into the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. And we get into the books of Samuel and the kings. And we learn the story of King Saul, and we see, we see David, and, and, and so we're just following this progression. And then ultimately, um, we learn about the exile and the people of Israel um, being exiled to Babylon and, and everything that happens there. Um, also in the Old Testament, we talk about the books of poetry. Um, so this uh, these are things like the book of the Psalms, uh, Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, even the book of Job. Um, is typically kind of thrown in with the books of poetry. And, and these are books that are not necessarily historical in nature. They aren't necessarily intended to be kind of chronological accounts of the nation of Israel, even though um, in the Psalms, for example, even though we can tie some of the Psalms of David to certain eras in his life. Um, these are books that are intended to be a little bit more artistic in nature. Um, if you're reading a book of poetry today, um, not even in the Bible, but just a, a work of poetry. Well, you're, you're not you're not reading that literally. More than likely, you're recognizing, oh, this is a work of poetry, and so I'm going to take into account uh, artistic language. I'm going to take into account symbolism. I'm going to take into account things like metaphor, and I'm going to say, what is the author trying to say, or what does this imagery mean? Um, that that's how more than likely you would read poetry today. And to some extent, we have to do the same thing in uh, the works of poetry in the Old Testament. And then also in the Old Testament, we have the books of prophecy. And this makes up a big chunk of the Old Testament. And this the, these are the guys that God sent to declare his word to the people of Israel. And very often they're saying, thus saith the Lord. Um, it's as if God has given them not only a, a message or a theme to declare, but in some cases, very literal words that he wants them to proclaim to the nation of Israel. So that's the way, in just broad strokes, that we kind of organize the Old Testament. History, poetry, and prophecy. We get into the New Testament, and, and we see some other genres, literary genres, that we have not seen yet. We see uh, works of biography uh, with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we see a work of history in the book of Acts. And, and so Acts is very much kind of a chronological telling of the story of the early church. Uh, we find correspondence. Um, so Paul's epistles and also um, letters written by uh, other apostles and other people connected to Jesus. So uh, you're talking about the first and second Peter. You're talking about first, second, third John, uh, James, and the book of Jude. Um, and then also uh, a, one work of prophecy in the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation, which if you've ever read Revelation, um, what you know is that it is highly metaphorical, it's highly symbolic, there are a lot of things in there that seem strange and confusing, and the same thing could be said of many of the Old Testament prophets. Um, if you think about like a book like Daniel, in the book of Daniel, 
um, dreams play a big component in the story of Daniel and um, King Nebuchadnezzar having dreams and what do these dreams mean? They're highly symbolic in nature. And so um, we have to take all of these things into account when we read the Bible. And, and one of the questions that we have to ask is, is what kind of book is this that I'm reading? Um, and, and I don't mean the collection of the books of the Bible, but I mean, if you're reading the book of Revelation, you have to ask, you know, what is this? Is this a work of history? Well, no. Is this a biography? No. Is this a letter? Well, there are some letters in the book of Revelation, in the first part of, of Revelation, you know, so how do we, how do we treat those letters when we consider the rest of this book, which is very obviously a work of prophecy? And, and so not only do we have to ask the question, what genre is the book, but we also have to recognize that there are subgenres within these books. And so if you think about the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within the Gospels, um, you have poetry. Uh, so, so Mary, for example, the mother of Jesus, when the angel appears and, and reveals to Mary everything that's going to transpire, that she's going to conceive, even though she's a virgin, that all these, you know, she's going to give birth to a son, his name's to be Jesus, all of those things. Um, that's very much a, a historical account right there. You know, it's, it's kind of, here's what happened, and it's in chronological order. But then we go from the angel telling Mary what's going to happen to uh, what's known as the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of praise to God. And it is presented in um, the form of poetry. And it's meant to be kind of lyrical in nature. And so we see that subgenre within the Gospels. Also within the Gospels, we see the subgenre of parable. Jesus is often teaching in parable form. And, and well, what is a parable? Well, parable is... Um, a story that is meant to represent something else. And so very often Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure buried in a field. And so he went and sold everything that he had to buy the field. Um, we can't read that as a literal story about a man that found a treasure and bought a field. Um, but instead, I think this is pretty plain and, and pretty clear, we're, we're to read this as a metaphor for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so understanding uh, what genres are out there um, and what individual books are and then even what subgenres exist within the books is incredibly important when we get to that phase of interpretation. What does this mean? Um, if we don't have a good sense of what it is in the first place, then it's going to be very difficult for us to actually interpret what's happening there. And so uh, let's talk some about just some different methods of study that are out there. And, and the first one, and this is primarily what we're focusing on in this course, is what's known as the inductive uh, Bible study method, the in inductive Bible study method. And, and the inductive method is... Um, drawing the truth out of a text, and it's letting the text speak for itself. It's trying to approach the text with, with no preconceived notions of what it is or what, what's happening or who it is or any of those things. It's, it's, it's very directly looking at what is on the page and, and, and asking some key questions about what is on the page. And, and that word inductive 
refers to the fact that when you're doing this this kind of Bible study, what you're ultimately doing is you are reasoning from the specific outward to the general. Um, and, and so what we mean by that is when we're doing inductive st- Bible study, we're looking at the actual words on the page and, and we see all the specifics of a particular text. And, and we're, ta- you know, the who is, who is this about or who is this written to or who are the characters we find here and then what's happening and what's being said and what is the context here and what time period is this in and who is the author and we're getting all of the specifics about a particular passage and then what we're doing with those specifics is we're kind of working outward and we're saying okay so what do all of those things mean we're interpreting the specifics and we're kind of reasoning out to come up with a general understanding of what a particular text means. And so that's what that word inductive refers to. Um, and, and, and I would say that this is the preeminent Bible study method. If you truly want to dig into Scripture and come away with an understanding of here is what the Bible says, here is what this book says, here is what this passage or this paragraph says, and here's what it means, then I, I really would would say that inductive Bible study is the way to go about that. Um, A second method is known as the deductive method of Bible study. And and so this would be the opposite of inductive study. So this is taking um, something very general and reasoning down to the specific details. And, And one of the best, I think, uh, just examples of deductive reasoning is Sherlock Holmes. If you've ever watched a Sherlock Holmes movie or read one of the sh- short stories um, by Arthur Conan Doyle, then what you know is is Sherlock Holmes always kind of begins with a general understanding of what has happened in a particular case. So maybe somebody comes to Sherlock Holmes and says, hey, my brother was found dead in his house um, in this town and uh, he was hit on the head. Well, what does Sherlock Holmes then do? Well, he then takes those general things. Um, we know that this person's dead. Um, we know his name. We know where he was found. And we know that he was hit on his head. And then what Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes does is he looks for clues and uh, deduces um, what ultimately happened to this person. And so he takes these general things and then he finds the specifics and what he learns is he was killed on this day by this person and this was the murder weapon and this was the motive all of these specific details about what happened i would say that often this is not the best way to go about uh studying the bible because ultimately deductive bible study is about starting with a premise and then kind of proof texting it with verses and, and I feel like the only way to do deductive Bible study well is to also kind of at the same time do inductive Bible study. And, and I'll try to explain what I mean by this. Um, the example that we gave in the class today was we, we have someone in the class that was raised in the Church of Christ. And one of the uh, kind of core beliefs in the Church of Christ is that, um, is that a person is not saved through faith in Jesus alone. Um, that something else that has to happen is that that person has to also be baptized. So this is not something we believe. Um, We believe that anybody who has come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior should want to be baptized, and that baptism is this beautiful picture, 
this kind of outward example of what has happened on the inside, but that baptism is not salvific and that baptism is not required for our salvation. That that would be kind of like adding on a, a work um, to uh, our understanding of salvation. Salvation is through faith alone. It is only by God's grace that we are saved. It's not also because we did this particular ritual. Um, and so depending on how you were raised, um, maybe you were raised to believe something like that. Maybe you were raised to believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And you want to know, is that true? Well, so you have this general premise. Um, and it could be that I believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, or it could be, be that you believe I don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, ultimately, what we want to know is, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about those things? And, and why would people be confused about that? And, and so you're going to do a little bit of deductive study there. You're going to start with that general premise, I either believe this or I don't believe this, but then what you're going to do is you're going to go, well, I want to look at all of the places in Scripture that talk about baptism, and then what I want to do is I want to inductively study each of those passages, and by inductively studying each of those passages, you then come away with an understanding of what that particular passage means. And then you compile all of these things that you've studied inductively to determine what a particular uh, belief set or doctrine should be. And so that, that's, that's an example of when kind of deductive study might be helpful. But, but on the whole, um, I, don't, I don't see that as something that most people would, would be doing regularly. And I think you could get into a little bit of trouble um, if you're primarily trying to study the Bible in that way, because what can happen is you can try to uh, infer on Scripture or apply to Scripture things that you already think to be true. And you can get into trouble if you start maybe kind of twisting texts or understanding a text in a different way that isn't supported by the rest of Scripture in order to support the premise that you already have. And so we want to let the Bible speak for itself. We don't want to infer our agenda or our opinion on the Bible. And then a third method of study. So we've talked about the inductive method, the deductive method. And then the third method, which I, I don't know that this is so much a method as much as it is a way that a lot of people approach the Bible. And this is not something I would recommend in any shape or form, but, but I, I've heard this called the springboard method, which is where you start with a verse and then use it to share an opinion. Um, and so an example of this could be uh, Matthew 4.4, like the first half of Matthew 4.4, which says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So you could take that verse, man shall not live on bread alone, which that's only half the verse, by the way. Um, you could also add like Proverbs 10.22, which says the blessing of the Lord, of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And so, so you could take those two verses and kind of cherry-pick them out of Scripture and kind of pull them out of what's around them, pull them out of their context, and you could come away with this opinion that uh, God wants us to live uh, wealthy, like royalty. And it's the blessing of the Lord that makes us rich. Um, and man shouldn't live on bread alone. Man, you know, we should be eating 
you know, all the good things. And, and you could say, well, and that, that means we shouldn't just have simple things. We should have, um, you know, fancy things. <laughs> so you can see how you can get into trouble with this. If you cherry pick individual verses out of scripture and then you make them say what you want them to say. And so you have to be really careful here. The whole purpose with inductive Bible study hopefully you see, is that we would let the Bible speak for itself, that we wouldn't project our preconceptions or uh, make it say what we want it to say or twist it, um, because when we do that, we really get into trouble. And we'll look a little bit more at that in a second. Um, So there are three steps to inductive Bible study, three very simple steps uh, that we follow when we're doing inductive Bible study. The first step is observation, and, and this is the step that you will probably spend the most time on. Um, so this isn't just reading the Bible. We want to really observe what uh, is on the page. Um, and, and one of the things that you do is you just ask those W questions. Who, what, where, why, when, um, how. Uh, you apply all of those things to the text that you're reading. So that's phase one. We want to observe what's there. What is this? Uh, the second phase is interpretation. So we want to take our observation, and then we want to ask the question, what does this mean? And as we've said a few minutes ago, you can't arrive at an accurate interpretation if you have not thoroughly observed the passage. And so we really have to dig into observation to arrive at an accurate interpretation. And then the third step is application. We want to take our observation and our interpretation and then go, okay, um, we know what's there, we, we know what it means, and now what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? How do I apply it to my life or my context? So three goals of observation. One, we want to discover the nature of the text. What is this? Um, and so we would be asking questions like, what literary genre is this book? You know, is this the gospel of Mark? Well, what is the gospel? Uh, who wrote this? When was it written? Um, what are some distinctives about this? And, and this is something that a really good study Bible is going to give you answers to. So uh, the MacArthur Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible, these are, are really great uh, study Bibles that are going to give you some awesome footnotes. Um, they're going to give you some uh, uh, little... Uh, hyperlinks within the text to tell you how passages relate to other passages of scripture. And when this person said this, it also is very similar to this over here. Um, So a good study Bible is also going to give you an introduction to each book that I would highly encourage you to read. It's going to tell you things you want to know. Who's the author? When were they writing? Who were they writing to? What is their intent in writing? Is there a theme that we find throughout this book? A good study Bible is going to tell you all of those things. So we want to discover the nature of the text. We then want to discover the contents of the text. What is actually there? What's being said? What are the words that are being used? And then we want to discover the context of the text. Um, And so context is just the circumstances surrounding the words on the page that help us understand what they mean. And so context is incredibly important. I mean, you could say in your own life, hey, if you really want to understand me, then you have to uh, know my parents. Um, Or if you really want to understand me, then you need to visit my hometown. What you're saying is, if you want to really understand me, then you need to understand the context 
that I came from. You need to understand the personalities of my parents or my siblings or the place that I come from or the way that I was raised or the time period that I grew up in. You need to understand my context, what makes me me. And the same thing is true with scripture. You have to understand the context of what you are reading so that you can arrive at an accurate interpretation. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous uh, British preacher, um, says this. He says, while there may be certain value in hanging up texts on the walls, he's talking about verses of Scripture, um, while there may be certain value in hanging up texts on the walls of our homes or reading a collection of texts in a book like Daily Light, so devotional reading, while there may be some value in that, let us never forget that such practices can be dangerous because there is a balance in Scripture and the context of each and every verse is always important. It is the simple truth to say that most of the heresies that have troubled the church throughout her long history have arisen because men and women have forgotten this simple principle. They have taken a text out of its context and have formulated a doctrine out of it. If they had but taken it in its context, they would have been saved from the error they have embraced. And so this is just him driving home the fact that, man, we have to pay attention to this stuff when we are handling the Word of God. Otherwise, we will project our own preconceptions or our own desires or our own agenda onto it and will ultimately result in heresy, which is just a false teaching. And we can uh, maybe even unintentionally or unknowingly lead people astray. And so we have to be incredibly careful about how we're handling God's Word and uh, be diligent in the ways that we're pursuing it. And so um, from here, we looked at uh, the book of Acts, and we looked at one verse in the book of Acts. And so you, if you have a Bible or if you have your phone, I, just take a minute and look at Acts 1.8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And um, try to look at it in an isolated way without considering anything else that's around it. And, and then ask yourself the question, just reading this one verse, and I'll read it. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You have to ask yourself the question, is, is that verse enough in and of itself for me to then move to the interpretation phase? Is there enough there? Um, and I, I hope that what you see is that no, there isn't. You, you can't take this one verse and then come away with some rich interpretation. Um, one of the things we try to do in studying inductively is we try to put aside what we may think we know about a particular book or a particular passage or a particular chapter of scripture. And so you may have read the book of Acts. You may think you know what the book of Acts is about or who the main characters are. And so you might think I can read Acts 1.8 and when it says you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you may think you know who you is. But if you're just reading this one verse and truly studying it inductively, um, then you don't know who you is. Um, there is no context here for you if you're just reading this one verse. And, and also one of the things you'll notice is that that verse begins with the word but, um, which will tell you immediately this is not a complete thought. Um, this is a part of a larger 
thought. And, and so we have to get a sense of what is around a particular verse before we can really start um, interpreting. And so this is all about observation. This is what we're digging into. And so since this is Acts 1.8, um, we can just go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, just eight verses prior, and we get a much more full sense of what's happening here. And so Acts 1 through 8, Acts 1, 1 through 8, rather, says in the, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's the full passage, Acts 1, 1 through 8, and, and obviously we get a much deeper sense of the context of this verse, and there's certainly enough content here for us to observe it thoroughly and then move to the next phase of interpretation. And so it's just some things we see in this text real quick. Um, one of the first things is, is we learn in verse 1, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So there is some other book, and this book is the second book, and there is a first book. Well, what is the first book? Well, a good study Bible will more than likely tell you in the introduction to the book of Acts that Acts is um, kind of part two of a two-part work written by Luke. And so the first book that he's referring to would be the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, and, and so what he's saying is to this person, Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus is, but Theophilus is obviously the recipient of this second book. Luke says, hey, look, in my first book, here's what I was talking about. Here, here was my subject matter. Here was the point of writing that. I, I was writing, dealing with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I think one thing um, that we could infer here is, so now in the second book, we're, we're continuing that, all that Jesus began to do and teach and what he continued to do, and now what is happening um, through the apostles. That's verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them uh, for 40 days. He was speaking about the kingdom of God. And, and what we want to do here in observing this text is we want to go through and we want to mark up the passage. We want to note who are the main characters. Um, what are the things that are being said here? Are there commands? Um, uh, Acts uh, 1.4 says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So Jesus gives them a very specific command there. I think that's important for us to note. He tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Well, what is this promise of the Father? Well, actually, if you go back to the end of the book of Luke, we get some answers to that stuff. Um, and, and so, again, context. If this is the second book, then maybe the first book is also important. And so it's good to reference um, each of those things. 
And um, so there's just all kinds of meat in here. And as we go through and observe, um, we're making note of all of these things. And so with that in mind, let's just talk about some observation steps and, uh, and then we'll be done. So the first step of observation is to read and reread and reread the passage itself. Um, I think it's helpful to read um, entire books at a time and, and then kind of come back and, and start over and start to inductively study. And so I like to read a book of the Bible as if it's kind of a novel, first of all, um, and just read it through, um, not spending a lot of time observing, but really just reading it. And then coming back and starting over and then really digging in into the observation phase. And so don't read something once and then immediately start trying to interpret it, which is, I think, what most people do. I think we quickly read something and then we immediately want to jump to, so what does it mean? We have to be careful about that. So read, reread, reread again. Um, do it as many times as you need to. Secondly, mark up the pack- passage. Mark it up. Uh, don't be afraid to write in your Bible. Circle, underline, highlight, write in the margins. Uh, you can buy a journaling Bible that has uh, a, a wide margin with, with lines for you to write on. Um, you might find that helpful. It might be helpful to you to just have a separate notebook that you use that's just for Bible study so you can take notes. Um, get creative, but don't be afraid to mark it up. Um, and if you Google just inductive st- study Bible or uh, inductive Bible study uh, notation or inductive Bible study marking or, or something like that, you'll find that there are a lot of different kind of models of ways that you can uh, take notes in your Bible or uh, notate things in the passage or highlight or whatever. Um, I know people love to use color-coded stuff, um, colored pencils, colored highlighters, and um, when, our, when we're encountering the words of Jesus, we're going to highlight those in red if we don't have a red-letter edition Bible, or when we're talking about God, we're going to mark it in blue, or when we're or we're going to draw a triangle there to symbolize the Trinity. Or I mean, there's just all kinds of cool ways to, um, to mark up a passage. And, and the point of doing that is this. It really forces you to kind of consider each word, which is, the, which is key. Um, and so don't be afraid to do that. Uh, next, uh, list two or three overarching themes that you see in the passage. Two or three overarching themes that you see in the passage. And so in the passage we just read, I mean, there's a ton of themes there. There are a ton of things that were kind of being mentioned. So um, this theme of waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit and this theme of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Um, there is this uh, theme of uh, being witnesses for Jesus, which is a continuation of some of what he said at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Um, so list two or three overarching themes that you see in the passage. Uh, next, list at least two observations per verse. Just, just what do you see here? What do you notice? Um, there's no right or wrong answer to this stuff. It's just what do you see when you read it? Here's, here's what sticks out to me. Here's what seems to be significant to me. Um, and you can list as many as you want to. Uh, next, number five, we want to answer those W questions, who, what, where, why, when, and how. Those are going to be key um, as you're observing the text. Who is this? Who's writing? What is it? Where are they? Why? Why is this even being written in the first place? 
Um, and, and so that's key, like in the letters of Paul. He's writing to various churches for various reasons. They have various issues. And so why? What's happening here? Um, next, we also want to look for the main action verbs. Um, we're asking, is there a command here that's being given? That's, that's kind of important. And so, so what are the action verbs in a text? Uh, next, look for things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, related, alike, unlike, true to life. Um, again, just what do you see here? What seems to be important? What seems to be emphasized or repeated? I think about Jesus. Jesus was um, often repeating himself. And so last week we talked some about the, I think, the exchange with Nicodemus. And Jesus says something like, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or, uh, Jesus says this kind of thing over and over again. If Jesus is repeating something, it's probably important. We probably need to take note of it. Um, next, work a paragraph at a time and summarize your observations. So I talked about reading the whole book and then kind of going back and then starting this process. Well, once you start this process, read a paragraph at a time and then stop and summarize what you've read. Um, just put it in your own words as you understand it. So those are some key steps for observing Scripture. And what we're going to do as we end is uh, we're going to look at one passage, and then next week we're going to begin our time by uh, digging into this passage and just observing it. And so what I would encourage you to do is spend some time this week uh, looking over this, reading it, rereading it, um, and just asking uh, those questions that we just went through, uh, marking up the passage, um, asking the W questions, what are the action verbs, all of the things we just mentioned, what's emphasized, what's repeated. Um, and so this is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 4, 1 through 4. And it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that's... Our passage that we're going to begin our time with next week, Matthew 4, 1 through 4, um, I would encourage you just in your time with the Lord, uh, take a look at it, um, observe it, spend time with it, read it, reread it, mark it up, ask those questions, write those things down in a notebook, try to summarize it, um, write down things that you observe there and for each verse. And um, that's where we'll begin next week. So thanks for taking some time to listen to this and uh, have a great week.